From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A new report based on government figures shows an old problem still persists. Black Americans in many states are twice as likely as whites to breathe air that can harm their health. Also, the debate over intelligent design as an alternative to evolutionary biology makes its way through the courts. A leading scientist says it's not about religious freedom. To come up to a scientific problem and say, you know, this is a really hard problem. I can't figure out this problem. No one before me was able to figure out this problem. No one who will ever be born in the future of Earth will figure this problem out. Therefore, God must have done it. Now, that's just surrendering to ignorance. And that is not what goes on in science. And as the new year approaches, we look at species lost and found. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A report by the Associated Press based on the federal government's own statistics shows that black Americans are almost 80 percent more likely than whites to live in neighborhoods where industrial air pollution is a major health hazard. The AP combined information from the 2000 census and a recent EPA project that mapped industrial air pollution for every square kilometer of the nation and also found that poor and less educated Americans, black and white, live in the top 5 percent of polluted parts of the country. David Pace reported the series. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Hello, sir. Hello. Talk to me about the role of race here. People say, look, blacks are much more likely to be poor than whites, uh, even though the absolute number of poor people in in America is white. And therefore, you'd find these uh, facilities in black neighborhoods uh, more likely. Or do you? Well, you do, and part of it is the legacy of the way industry developed in this country. Blacks tend to live more in inner cities, uh, in areas where industrial plants are located. The thing that surprised us in in doing this study was that environmental justice has been an issue on the national agenda for more than two decades now. And in 1993, President Clinton issued an executive order uh, directing all agencies of the government to start addressing these inequities through existing civil rights laws and environmental laws. And yet it's been, you know, 12 years since that executive order has come out, and we find, you know, pretty much exactly the same thing that first raised this issue two decades ago. There doesn't seem to have been a lot of progress. Why haven't things changed in the 20 years or so since this issue was raised? Well, it's a very difficult issue to get at. Industrial corridors tend to attract other industry. That's where plants go to get to be located. Uh, black people and poor people have less political clout than their white suburban neighbors. If a company decided to locate a plant in a, an affluent area, they would face a, a long battle, to uh, a legal battle, to a public relations battle from the community to try to keep that plant from being located there. Black Americans who live in these neighborhoods and poor people who live in these neighborhoods that already are industrial sites uh, to a large degree don't have the clout to, in many cases, to fight back. What are the health risks from the kind of industrial pollution that you looked at? I know that asthma is very high on the list, but what else is there? Respiratory problems are, are of all types are very high, asthma, uh, bronchitis. A number of these chemicals that are being released are carcinogens. They've been found in laboratory tests to cause cancer. There's a lot of research going on uh, to try to determine if there is a definite link between 
some of these most toxic chemicals and various cancers. Um, it hasn't been established yet. There are people who believe it's there. There are people who, on the other side, who argue it isn't. But they're definitely the chemicals that are being released, some of them, uh, have been tested by the government and determined to cause cancer in, in humans, you know, at significant doses. You went to a lot of places. You know, what was one of the uh, one of the worst situations that you saw? What sticks with you as being, frankly, a tragedy in your mind after this? Well, the worst situation I thought was was Camden, New Jersey. Uh, Camden has always been sort of the, the poster child for environmental justice issues. But we visited with a woman there who gave us a tour of her neighborhood, and it was one plant after another. I mean, around the corner was a, a sewage treatment plant. Down the other side of the street was a, a licorice mulch factory. Behind her house were three scrap metal recyclers. Uh, the cement plants located within uh, 100 yards of her house. There's a Superfund site, which is an air pollution, but it's a Superfund site that uh, closed decades ago and was left there by the feds for over 20 years before it was finally cleaned up. That Superfund site is, you know, within sight of her front porch. So she's just completely surrounded, and she's not the only one. She lives on the street that's just uh, a bro houses in Camden, and these people are, you know, right in the middle of an industrial area. Now, the Environmental Protection Agency says that overall industrial air pollution has declined significantly, and in fact, in your series, you, you note that the total annual emissions of certain toxins are down by a third since 1990. That sounds like some improvement, isn't it? Oh, there's definitely been improvement. Uh, the, the Clean Air Act has been resulted in dramatic reductions in air pollution across the country. And, uh, you know, ultimately, if you keep going at that level, you will solve some of the problems in these communities. But the overall reductions mask the fact that some of these communities still are very heavily polluted and they're, they're not getting the same relief. You know, I would venture to guess that the overall levels of pollution in, in these communities are down somewhat from the past three decades now that the Clean Air Act has been in, in effect. But if you go and walk the streets in the neighborhoods and smell the air and talk to the residents, you find a you know a very different story that people are still living in areas across the country where there is heavy industrial air pollution, where it is, according to them, affecting their health, affecting the health of their children, and it's something that you know they they would like to see changed. David Pace writes for the Associated Press in Washington. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Despite the great outpouring of sympathy for Gulf Coast residents after the catastrophic summer storms, restoration efforts are only just getting started. Hundreds of thousands of people are still displaced, the New Orleans levee system is still broken, and for those who decide to chance a return, caution is still the watchword. One hazard that seems to be too much for the authorities to handle right now is the dull, gray, dusty grime that the mucky floodwaters left behind. It stains the city's walls, streets, backyards, and playgrounds. It's loaded with poisons such as arsenic, but Louisiana environmental and health officials say the sediment is not a health hazard so long as people avoid too much contact. Some New Orleans activists don't agree, and they're demanding a cleanup. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. This is the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans, just a few blocks from the breach on the Industrial Canal. The sediment that's left behind is uh, a couple of inches thick all over the ground here. It's drying 
caking and cracking, and uh, there's a lot of concern about what's in this sediment and what happens when it dries and begins to blow around. Pretty well saturated. Had enough? Yeah. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency hired these workers to take samples from a New Orleans neighborhood known as the Agriculture Street Landfill. Housing development and school there sit atop an old hazardous waste dump. The fear was that these old toxic sites and the region's heavy industry left behind what some called a toxic gumbo in the sediment, which was more than a foot deep in some parts of the city. State and federal agencies took thousands of samples from some 150 sites in New Orleans and neighboring parishes. Early tests found high levels of fecal bacteria, but officials expect those microbes to die out. Arsenic, lead, and organic hydrocarbons from diesel and oil, substances linked to cancer, neural disorders, and other ailments, were found in many parts of the city. But officials with the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality say the levels detected do not present short- or long-term health threats. Not even close to a toxic soup. That's Tom Harris, Louisiana's state toxicologist. The levels of chemicals were consistent with what was there before Katrina and, and protective for children being playing in the dirt for the next 30 years. Harris says the state and federal agencies will continue to monitor, but his conclusion, backed by EPA, is that most of the area is safe. Although a number of samples exceed state and federal thresholds, Harris says they are still within what he calls acceptable risk. Except for one community in St. Bernard Parish affected by an oil spill, no widespread cleanup of sediment is needed. Environmental activists looked at the same numbers and came away with a very different conclusion. We see a clear need for EPA and the state to step in and start a cleanup as soon as possible. That's Eric Olson, an attorney with Natural Resources Defense Council. NRDC teamed with local groups in Louisiana to audit EPA and state data and to conduct some of their own sampling. They say the agencies have downplayed risks posed by the sediment and dodged responsibility to clean it up. Olson says the state should apply a stricter standard for toxins like arsenic because of the nature of the sediment. Our scientists call this bioavailable. This is coating just covers the whole area. People, children especially, are going to be crawling around in it. They're going to be running around in it. The dust is suspending. People are sweeping it up. It's in their houses. It's all over the, the city. Um, if you don't clean that up, the problem is that people will continue to be exposed As activists and regulators argued over how to interpret the data, the first peer-reviewed scientific study of the sediment appeared in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Texas Tech University professor Stephen Presley led a team that found slightly elevated levels of some pesticides and arsenic, but it was lead levels that got his attention. In two samples, lead was above what EPA calls its high-priority bright-line screening level. Presley says the data posed questions for officials. Why did we establish these values where there's concern that human health will be negatively impacted? Why were those values established if we're not going to do anything about it when we exceed those values? A senior policy analyst at EPA says some within the agency asked the same questions. Hugh Kaufman is a 30-year veteran of the agency and a frequent critic of his own employer. Kaufman says the federal agencies ceded authority to the state, which is eager to sound the all-clear and avoid a costly cleanup. A decision had been made that EPA 
would basically have the Corps of Engineers start the cleanup process. Around the beginning of December, uh, there was backpedaling by the federal government, and now uh, the federal government's position is everything is safe enough, and so we're not going to do any uh, substantive cleanup. EPA Deputy Administrator Marcus Peacock denies this. He says the federal and state governments are working together without compromising safety. It's easy for people to say, well, EPA should come in and and, uh, do all this work, but the fact of the matter is the responsibilities are actually pretty clearly set out in the National Response Plan and worked out with the state and local officials to make sure that the public health and environment are protected. New Orleans activists are still pressing for action. They sent EPA and FEMA officials a letter demanding a full cleanup of the sediment and holding out the possibility of legal action to make it happen. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young. Coming up, big promises and maybe big perils from the tiniest of packages. What you should know about the new technology called Nano. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Everybody, it seems, is interested in it. The military sees a chance to make things faster, smaller, and more efficient. Medicine sees a way to treat any organ, including the brain and heart, without reaching for the scalpel or destroying healthy cells. Consumers can look forward to novel materials ranging from odor-free socks to glare-free glass. The IT is the emerging technology of the tiny. It's called nanotechnology. Nano is the prefix the metric system uses for one billionth. So nanotech is about manipulating materials at one billionth of the size they are usually handled. In other words, down at the level of the single atom. There are safety and ecological concerns about nanomethods and materials, so the Environmental Protection Agency has just come out with a document to spark discussion of the arising technology's potential benefits and risks. Joining me is David Rajeski. He directs the Project on Emerging Nanotechnology at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Hello, sir. Hello. Glad to be here. I hear the term nanotechnology all the time, meaning small things in technology. But what exactly is nanotechnology for someone who's never heard of it? I think it's useful to think of nanotech as a new way of making things rather than just a technology. We reached a point based really on decades of research where we can actually see and manipulate individual atoms. And when we gain that level of control over matter, two really interesting things happen. I think the first is that we can really fine-tune uh, the behavior of a lot of substances we now use. And number two, it's going to allow us to discover whole new properties and new substances. We're not talking about science fiction. It's here now. How big is this nanotech thing? You're going to see nanotechnologies in just about everything, from consumer goods to medicine, food, energy production, aerospace. Right now, there's an estimated 1,600 firms globally involved in nanotech. And according to some estimates, there are probably five to 700 products already on the market. What products am I buying today that have it in it and I don't even realize it? 
uh, if you're a skier, uh, it may be in the goggles and glasses that you have. Uh, one area where uh, nanotechnology has found some applications is actually coating lenses. And you're able to actually fine-tune the properties of the lenses with very, very thin films. So you can make it anti-scratch, anti-glare, anti-fogging, anti-microbial. You can block out UV rays. You're going to see applications already in, in high-performance fabrics that are water and stain resistant. Um, one of the interesting things was in sunscreens. So they've been able to take some of the ultraviolet blocking chemicals like zinc oxide, which are usually white and greasy. Uh, so when you put them on, you kind of look like a polar bear. And at a nanoscale, they can be made to be perfectly clear while retaining and actually enhancing a lot of the ultraviolet blocking characteristics. Looking inside the Woodrow Wilson uh, Institute's uh, nanotechnology crystal ball, what do you see? I find the medical applications actually the most exciting. They're exciting simply in terms of, of the huge impacts they could have on, on health across a wide range of, of diseases. Uh, let me just give you one example. People in some of the universities now have taken gold. Um, they reduced it to about the size of, I think, about 35 nanometers. And they coat it with an antibody that allows these particles to attach to cancer cells. Uh, once you've attached the gold particle to the cancer cell, it only takes a very small amount of energy, which you can deliver uh, with infrared light that will penetrate the skin. And you can heat that cancer cell up to about 50, 55 degrees centigrade and destroy it. Some say that nanotechnology is the next, well, maybe industrial revolution uh, because it has so many different applications in so many different fields. How could nanotechnology help play a part in helping the environment? Well, there's already some examples of nanotechnology that's being used to clean up groundwater pollution. And they actually take iron, simple iron. If you reduce it down to about 70 nanometers in size, it becomes very reactive. Essentially, it's rusting, but it's rusting much faster. And it can actually be used to clean up groundwater pollution. So this is being injected into the ground, and it's been shown to be at least about 20 sites now around the country, uh, fairly effective in terms of dealing with a lot of chemicals that are in the groundwater. So with great powers going to such small things, there must be some risks of having these things loose in the environment, right? Well, yeah, I think there's a number of potential risks. I mean, the research has provided some answers, but there's still a lot of, of knowledge gaps. So, you know, if we look at the sunscreen issue, um, that's been researched now for actually three or four years. Um, there's a big study that was done in Europe on the, you know, what happens when you put these incredibly small particles on your skin. Uh, what they have found, um, for instance, is that um, it tends to be, uh, they think, fairly good if you've got healthy skin, if you've got compromised skin, if you have cuts and, and bruises and that sort of thing, uh, then it's less clear, obviously, what the impact might be. There's not a lot of research on the impacts on the environment. Again, if you look at the sunscreen, what happens when that washes off into the marine habitats? Are there going to be impacts on marine mammals, fish, uh, coral reefs, that sort of thing? But it sounds like there's a, a fair lack of government involvement in supervision vision of the safety of nanotechnology. In your view, what should be done to ensure the consumers and the environment, uh, whenever we and it is exposed to nanotechnology, that the stuff has been thoroughly tested and proven to be safe? I think one of the, the things that can be done, obviously, is that companies could submit products to testing by third-party independent testers. I think groups like Underwriters Laboratory, Consumer Reports, um, those kind of independent third-party voices to consumers will play a very critical role, actually, as nanotech rolls out, because there just is not a lot of public trust in, in either government or industry to manage these risks. David Rajeski is director of the Project on Emerging Nanotechnologies at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, a partnership with the Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you so much. Thank you.
time now for comments from you, our listeners. Our story about New Orleans residents returning to homes with elevated mold spore levels netted some impassioned responses from mold sufferers across the nation. I am glad someone is taking this mold seriously, writes Linda Delp of Delaware. I am one of many who are ill from mold who have been writing Congress on our representatives since Katrina. There are so many suffering this illness, and we don't want more to suffer. Unfortunately, she claims, Congress is looking the other way. Finally, our talk with Jay Ingram about his new book, The Velocity of Honey and More Science of Everyday Life, garnered this tongue-in-cheek response. The story about toast landing buttered side down reminded me of an apocryphal argument between an empiricist and a pessimistic phenomenologist, writes John Lloyd, who tunes in on WMRY in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now, the empiricist and phenomenologist disagreed about which side a piece of buttered toast would land on. The phenomenologist contended it was bound to land buttered side down, that such bad things were simply destined to happen. The empiricist contended it could only be determined by testing. So they toasted and buttered a slice of bread, tossed it in the air, and lo and behold, it landed buttered side up. See, said the empiricist, it just goes to prove to you that you have to test things. Not really, the phenomenologist responded dourly. It just goes to show that we buttered the wrong side of the toast. Your comments are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Or visit our webpage, livingonearth.org, where you can hear our show anytime or get a download for your iPod. That's livingonearth.org. In January, a Dover, Pennsylvania judge is expected to rule whether intelligent design can be taught in a public school science class as an alternative to evolution. Intelligent design is the theory that the origins and workings of the universe can never be explained through science alone. The judge will decide whether teaching intelligent design as part of a ninth-grade biology class violates the First Amendment of the Constitution's separation between church and state. And Pennsylvania is not alone. Some 20 states are considering teaching intelligent design in science classes. With me is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astrophysicist and head of New York's Hayden Planetarium. Neil Tyson, just how novel is the argument of intelligent design as the answer to the mysteries of science? Well, actually, many people think that notion is something new in the news, but if you comb the history books and look at what, uh, let's take scientists in particular, how many of the greatest scientists of the past have thought about their work and the frontier of their work, it's replete with reference to uh, an almighty creator having a hand in what's going on. But you have to pay close attention to how they invoke the creator. Going back even to Ptolemy 2,000 years ago, he had an explanation for the planets, and it involved very intricate epicycles, which are these loop-de-loops that planets are doing to explain what's going on. But it was fundamentally flawed because the sun is in the middle of all this motion, not Earth. And so he knew that he was at his limits there, and he uttered what I think are some of the most poetic words ever to be spoken on the frontier of ignorance. And he said, when I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies. I no longer touch earth with my feet. I stand in the presence of Zeus himself and take my fill of ambrosia. So there he was sort of basking in religious glory on that frontier where he could not really understand what was going on. And it would take a while before somebody figured out what was going on. That person was Newton. 
Newton figured out which way the planets were going and how they did it. You read his discussion of gravity, God is nowhere to be found. Only when he looks at his equations and finds out, you know, the solar system, I think, is unstable. You keep up this gravity long enough with all these multiple planets tugging on each other, it'll unravel this beautiful system of gravity that I have put forth that describes how they attract each other. And he waxes poetic about God coming in and fixing that and keeping it going. And it was not until 100 years after that where Simon-Pierre de Laplace, a brilliant French mathematician, uh, was not content with just assigning that role to God. And he went in and figured out that the solar system is stable and invented a new form of mathematics to learn that. So we can glean a lot from scanning the history of people invoking what today is called intelligent design. And what they all have in common is it stunts further progress of discovery. Neil, I'm wondering if uh, intelligent design is just another term for creationism or different. As I understand it, the creationism perspective is one that looks directly at the Judeo-Christian Bible that says that uh, God created everything here in seven days. Six days. Six days. <laughs> so, oh, that's right. He took a day off. Arrested on the seventh day. <laughs> yep. And intelligent design is not necessarily subscribing to that very literal interpretation, but saying, you know, this is really pretty amazing stuff, and there must be something really smart, some being that created all of this. So is there anything different in the movement to include intelligent design in science curricula as opposed to efforts to teach creationism in schools? Well, what they have in common is that they're both not science. But if you were to step into that universe, if you will, you can find differences among them. If you look 15, 20 years ago, the creation science movement, which is what it was called, was taking a, just as you described, a literal interpretation of the Judeo-Christian Bible and asserts that the universe was created in the six days and could not be much older than 10,000 years as demanded by biblical chronology. Now, in this latest movement, you don't have people who are leading the intelligent design movement making those kinds of claims because they're just patently false uh, in the face of scientific evidence. What you have them saying is, and many of them, in fact, do accept what science tells us about the universe. Many of them do accept that the universe is about 14 billion years old and, you know, that Earth goes around the sun. You know, they accept this, and their only issue is when you come to something you can't explain, and they assert that it's unexplainable. Now, you've been involved with updating the National Academy of Sciences document on creationism, uh, versus evolution. I think that was done in 1999. And that document states, quote, unequivocally that uh, creationism has no place in any science curriculum at any level. Now, in the updating that you're involved in right now, will this entail doing more than just including the term intelligent design in addition to creationism? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on a committee to sort of revise that document, which, by the way, is important in many ways. That document is read not only by sort of school administrators, but by school teachers who are not otherwise part of the debate, but they want some guidance into as to how they should treat the subject when they go back to their classroom. And so, yes, the document needs to gather some language that has accumulated over the past few years to enhance its relevance to what's going on in the various court cases. But also, one of our goals is to have it serve the role as a guide for people to understand how science works. 
So rather than just going around debunking things, you just sort of highlight and enlighten the reader in terms of what theories are, how they work, how the frontier of science advances. And then it's simply a document that brings you up close and personal to the, the methods and tools of science. And in that way, you, you will understand immediately that philosophies of ignorance have no place in the same room as philosophies of discovery. Let's say the courts in Pennsylvania, or perhaps someplace else here in the United States, rule in favor of teaching intelligent design alongside evolution, as what recently happened in Kansas. What would this mean for the future of science? Yeah, that's an excellent question, because in some ways, I don't really care much about the court case. I mean, it's interesting to follow sociologically, but if they say intelligent design is science, that doesn't make it science. You know, the, the courts is not the ultimate arbiter of how science works. It would be a curious development that we would have a legal system legislating what is science and what isn't. I can tell you this, that in the 21st century, emergent economies will flow from our innovations in science and technology. And the moment we stunt our curiosity by offering ready explanations that it's unknowable, we will cede to the rest of the world that frontier of discovery. And we will see more than just a few engineering jobs go overseas. It'll be sort of the beginning of the end of our sort of economic strength as a nation that we've come to take for granted in the 20th century. Neil deGrasse Tyson heads the Hayden Planetarium in New York and is a frequent contributor to Living on Earth. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Just ahead, an inventor's dream turns into a nightmare. First, this note on emerging science from Emily Torgrimson. Think the world is just one big catwalk, your own personal runway? Here's our look at some of the hottest new species discovered this past year, as well as the animals who made a comeback and the ones no longer with us. New this year is Osidax mucoflorus, or the bone-eating snotflower. It's an elegant new species of marine worm discovered off the Swedish coast. It lives off whalebone on the ocean floor. Its root system extends into the bone and plumes out like a flower with lovely mucus-covered petals. From the forests of Tanzania comes Africa's first new species of monkey in more than 20 years, the highland mangabe, Lophosibus kipunji. It models cheek whiskers, a cream belly and tail, and long crest of hair on its head, as well as an unusual call its discoverers call a honk bark. Though just emerging on the scene, the highland mangabe is already critically endangered because of illegal logging. And of course, the nostalgic star of the year was rediscovered in the big woods of Arkansas, the ivory-billed woodpecker, Campephalus principalis. The largest woodpecker in North America re-emerged this spring, 60 years after its last confirmed sighting in the United States. But as fads move in and out and trends supersede each other, for some species to succeed, others must fail. According to BirdLife International, one species was officially declared extinct in 2005. The thick-billed ground dove disappeared after much of its habitat in the Solomon Islands was open to logging. 
the introduction of rats, dogs, and cats didn't help much either. Alas, extinction is a natural feature of evolution. But the World Wildlife Foundation estimates that current extinction rates are between 100 and 1,000 times the background extinction rate at which species would naturally go extinct without human intervention. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Emily Torpemson. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Some people exult in their work while others struggle just to show up each day. Some prosper in their careers while others end up broken-spirited and bankrupt. Harry Goldstein has this reporter's notebook about a man who loved his work and invented a way to make a better car but took a wrong turn on the road to success. It's cold. You've never heard of Corliss Orville Barant. I hadn't either until someone slapped a ten-page fax down on my desk that Barant, or Cobb as he calls himself, sent me about the flood of hybrid electric cars onto the world market. Cobb claimed to have invented and patented a way of using a sensor inside a cylinder of a car engine to optimize how air and fuel mix during combustion. He claims almost all hybrid cars on the market are using a version of his invention. But Cobb didn't get rich off his patent. Instead, he lost his house, his wife, and his mind. Somehow, through years of homelessness, Cobb and some well-meaning friends have preserved a prototype of his invention. It sits in the trunk of a sky-blue 1965 Corvair in an auto shop in the Minneapolis suburb of Ham Lake. My friend John Zern drove me out there to meet Cobb and see the Corvair. The day was blindingly bright and frigid. Fast traffic now. Look at the weather forecast with Mike Lynch. We are chilling and thrilling. Uh, we've got uh, all kinds of cold air all around CCO land. The Arctic siege continues. The macho cold air directly, live and direct from the North Pole. I explained to John that Cobb's story serves as a warning to all inventors who exchange rights to their patents in return for venture capital to bring those inventions to market. Cobb thought he was on his way to Easy Street, when in 2002, he discovered that Honda's intelligent VTEC engine used technology similar to that described in his U.S. patent number 4961406. Issued on October 9, 1990, this patent covers a, quote, method and device for optimizing the air-fuel mixture burn rate of internal combustion engines. So, you know, Cobb's, did you get Cobb's name? Corliss Orville Barant. Corliss Orville Barant. Apparently a direct descendant of uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Corliss, some very famous uh, steam engine uh, inventor. He made it efficient. He made it efficient. And that's what, that's what we want to do today. It's 
With this patent in hand, Cup thought he could force the world's largest car makers to pay him royalties on an idea he believed they were clearly using. But there was a problem, a big one. Cup didn't own the patent. Not only that, the company to which Cobb had assigned ownership, Investment Rarities Inc. of Minneapolis, had failed to pay the U.S. Patent Office the maintenance fees due on all 12 of the patents Barrant had garnered over the course of a decade. So Cobb's invention slipped into the public domain. Today, anyone can use it for free. By the time I finished telling John the particulars, we had arrived at our destination, Benson's Transmission Center. Wow, there are a lot of trucks around here. I don't see anyone here. It's open here. Hi. Are you here to see Cobb? Yes, here to see Cobb. We entered a cramped, wood-paneled office and were greeted by the office manager who fetched Cobb from the garage. Hey. Hey, Cobb. Nice, nice to meet you. you. Pleased oh, to meet you. Long time. How you doing? John, pleased nice to, to meet you. you. Well-groomed, dressed in a black leather vest and black jeans with piercing gray eyes that would occasionally flutter shut as if he were about to fall asleep, Cobb greeted us with a hearty handshake and immediately launched into his story. His dream was to have car engines communicate with satellites that would calibrate the engine to operate at optimum efficiency depending on where you were driving in the U.S. What kind of car is it again? A 1965 Corvair, or I should say half of a 1965 Corvair. So we cut the engine in half, and we rotated it 90 degrees, and we made a opposed pushrod six-cylinder into an upright three-cylinder overhead cam engine with variable compression, variable cam phasing, and variable valve events that all can be adjusted by radio control because we were trying to advocate that you could reprogram things on the fly from uh, satellites before there were satellites. So we were hitchhiking and we were going to do it off of a radio uh, station. As a noisy printer churned out page after page of invoices, we stood there in the office listening to Cobb, trying to get him to focus on the timeline, when he invented what, and how his whole odyssey began. Yeah. And, and, and what, year were you, what, what years were you showing this around? Early 80s. Early 80s. Yep, and, had, and you say we. Who, who was involved with Well, this? at that time, we had so much money. We had, a, we, had a profe- we had several professional people that would transport the car. And, I mean, we were dealing with presidents and companies, and um, it was a high-roller venture. I mean, um, you know, we were eating in these restaurants with Muhammad Ali and all these, you know, it was quite the role. I was there to stay on top of technology. I wasn't there to be worried about hotel rooms, transportation, or anything. The company said, you think variable valve timing from when you get up and you go to bed and everything else is on us, because that's the only way we were going to get to the top. Here is a man who believed his invention could change the world for the better. Cheaper, cleaner cars, a better environment, less dependence on foreign oil. The world was his oyster. He was eating in fine restaurants, 
talking with top executives at big automakers, and he was turning down multi-million dollar offers to develop engines for the likes of GM, all because his venture capitalist, Investment Rarities, thought it could get more. But when its core business, gold trading, went south in the late 1980s, Investment Rarities dropped Cobb and his patents. Cobb recalled the grim day in 1988 when he stood between the local post office and a McDonald's, trying to decide whether to spend the only money he had left on a cheeseburger for his growling stomach or postage for his last remaining patent. And everybody, I mean everybody, said, walk away from it, give it up, you've wasted your life over it. I said, no way, this is the control patent. Anybody that ever lands one of these mamas has got easy street for the rest of his life. And that's how, that's how the flat, in the end, the financial, it, it, was, it, it wasn't believable. I couldn't tell you a story that would, that would actually... I, you couldn't put it in words how horrible the financial end of the deal was. And I wrote it through, and then basically nothing happened for years. The investment rarities got, basically the IRS shut them down. Cobb's eyes fluttered again, and it looked as though he might break into tears at any moment. The nostalgia for what he had and what might have been seemed too much. He'd made a huge mistake somewhere along the line, and he knew just what it was. The dilemma that I got myself in is a dilemma that any engineer in the world can get in. I lost everything I owned. I mean, I lived in that car. I mean, that was my address. That's how far I went down the tube. And there was no money to pay maintenance fees. So the United States government took away all 12 of my patents. Basically... I started having some stress-related health problems. I'm certified crazy. I'm on SSI, totally mentally disabled. I mean, I was declared crazy. It says right on my papers, obsessive-compulsive behavior associated with engine patents. It says it right on my papers, right on the deal when they went down and analyzed me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, I mean, I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost all my cars. I lost everything. I was freaking homeless. I lived in that goddamn car for a while. I mean, how many inventors live in their prototypes? I mean, is that ridiculous or what? I mean, it was just... I ruined my family with the deal. I mean, uh, but it was... In terms of what happened to me, basically, I was left to rot for eight years. The annals of technology are filled with stories about inventors whose epic struggles over their inventions drove them over the edge. Some, like Edwin Armstrong, inventor of FM radio, take their own lives. Others, like Nikola Tesla, the father of alternating current, suffered, like Cobb, from obsessive-compulsive disorder. Tesla required any repeated actions in his life, such as the footsteps he took in a walk, to be divisible by three and he would keep repeating them until he arrived at the right total. When we met with Cobb, it was apparent that his obsessive compulsions focused entirely on car engines. But beyond that, it seemed to me that some essential part of him, what some people might call a soul, I guess, was indistinguishable from his invention. He is the variable valve mechanism, and it is him. When after over an hour of conversation... I asked to see the prototype, 
His sleepy, medicated eyes sparkled to life, and like a kid on Christmas morning, he bounded through the door leading to the garage and showed us the modified Corvair. Okay, now this is in the economy mode, and you can listen when we go into the performance mode, you will see the idle quality deteriorate. Well, just to simulate that, I'll show you what happens here if I push it all the way up. Maintenance fees are a capitalist tool for driving small people out of business, and the small guy in my opinion, is always the guy that gets us five years ahead. I mean, that's what, we're, that's what the patent deal does, is that the sooner we get something birthed into the incubation period, the greater the potential to capitalize on, you know, on the large-scale employment we can derive from it. So we need the guys birthing, and we need to keep them alive. Well, how the hell are you going to do that, and how could a state do that and, re, and make a... Uh, and get a return on their money. And I think making the payment of maintenance fees and possibly the patent application cost eligible for tax credits, probably another thing I would say on that is I think especially things that have to do with environment and energy, you know, they have a social value as well as not like just another hula hoop, but things that have a social value also. All right. Well, I think we, uh, we need to be getting on. Okay. <laughs> As we drove back to Minneapolis, John and I talked about how it was appropriate somehow that we hadn't met Cobb anywhere but the garage. The garage was where Cobb really lived, even when his body was sleeping somewhere else. He tries to solve the same problem over and over again, how to get control of his patents back. And that's as far as he'll go, because what lies beyond patent battles with some of the world's largest corporations is too remote a possibility even for Cobb to contemplate, and surely too expensive for him to ever afford. His patents expire next year, and hope with them. And hope is the only thing that's kept Cobb's motor running all these years. As the frozen expanse of great white north suburbia flash by, the trailer parks cheek by jowl with the giant malls filled with last-minute shoppers, Part of me wished I'd asked Cobb how he was going to spend Christmas. Another part of me couldn't bear to know. For Living on Earth, I'm Harry Goldstein. Harry Goldstein is a reporter for Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum Magazine. To see photos of Corliss Orville Morant, a.k.a. Cobb, and his invention, visit our website, livingonearth.org. Next week on Living on Earth, a little storytelling, a little comfort food, and a whole lot of blues. We make a good combo. Oh, yes, we do. We make a good combo on the old bayou. Oh, yeah.
gumbo is, you know, it's very simple. A lot of people think gumbo is we go in there and empty out the, the leftovers in the refrigerator and put it all in one pot, and that's gumbo. No, that's not the case. That's Cajun blues guitarist Tab Benoit. He joins me next week for Living on Earth's Christmas time holiday special, Longing for Louisiana. Tab and others will brew a mix of holiday spirits, including a Cajun version of The Night Before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, they don't a tink pass, not even a mouse. The children been nestled, good snug on the floor, and mom passed the pepper through the crack in the dough. Then mama in the fireplace done rolls up the ham, stir up the gumbo, and bake the yam. Storyteller Angela Davis will spin a tale of New Orleans' Christmas past. I hear you a storyteller. You know any ghost stories? Why don't we pass the time telling ghost stories? And Dr. Jazz, the trumpet-playing coroner of New Orleans, talks about his love of the city's music and how much his absence is affecting him this time of year. My mother played a lot of gospel stuff, but uh, around Christmas holidays, there was, there was always music every day. Either my mother or my grandmother was playing. Chef Susan Spicer also joins the Couchon de Lay to talk about reopening her New Orleans restaurant, Bayona. And the Louisiana standard she's cooking for Christmas, and it ain't no turkey. Something that always says uh, holiday time in New Orleans to me is oysters. As for Tab Benoit, he's sticking to his gumbo. The thing is with a roux, you have to constantly stir it. And, and it's going to take you a good 40, 45 minutes of stirring, constant stirring. And you can't stop. So once you start that roux, you know, you better get you something to drink right next to that and get all of your, your trinity, which is the bell peppers, the onions, and celery. That's what we call the trinity. And, and you, you constantly stir it, and it doesn't do anything for a long time, but then all of a sudden it starts browning and it starts getting that good kind of popcorn smell to it. And, whew, man, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Is this a cooking show? <laughs> yes, it's a cooking show and more on our Christmas time holiday special, Longing for Louisiana, next week on Living on Earth. Ça, c'est bon. We make a good gumbo with a loving touch. From New Orleans, way down to the gut. Oh yeah. We leave you this week with the voice of the Louisiana Bayou. Kim Wilson recorded this chorus of bird songs, frog calls, alligator grunts, and the squeal of an amphibian being skewered by a heron in the primordial waters of the bayou. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation, our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Brianna Asbury, Kevin Friedel, and Emily Torgrimson. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations. The Ford Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.